What's next? This is a question we're all having to ask and answer more frequently. I'm Jenny Blake, your host of the Pivot Podcast and author of Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One. For show notes from this episode, visit pivotmethod.com slash podcast. If change is the only constant, then let's get better at it. Here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I am positively giddy to have this week's guest, Cy Montgomery, with us here today. Get ready, friends, for our, our just a wonderful soul person and writer. Sai has been described by the Boston Globe as part Emily Dickinson, part Indiana Jones. I found her from reading her book, gorgeous book, riveting, fascinating, awe-inspiring. It's called The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonder of Consciousness. As you all know, here on the Pivot Podcast, I love exploring consciousness and soul and yet we haven't done it yet in the animal kingdom. And there's no one better to do that, to help us do that, than Sai. Sai has written 21 books for adults and children. She's been chased by an angry silverback gorilla in Rwanda, hunted by tiger in India, swum with piranhas, electric eels, and pink dolphins in the Amazon. Her work has taken her from the cloud forest of Papua New Guinea for a book on tree kangaroos to the Altai Mountains of Gobi for another on snow leopards. Soul of an Octopus won a National Book Award. It was a New York Times bestseller and National Book Award finalist. And another one of her runaway bestsellers is called The Good, Good Pig, The Extraordinary Life of Christopher Hogwood, which I also read before this interview. And that's about her 14-year relationship with her beloved pig, who grew to be 750 pounds, famous within her town of Hancock and beloved by all who met him. Sai, welcome to the show. Well, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Oh, lucky us. Uh, you describe in Good, Good Pig that you've always kind of seen yourself as part animal and even an animal in previous lives. You say, animals have always been my refuge, my avatars, my spirit twins. Can you tell us a little bit about how, even at a young age, this love of animals showed up for you? Oh, yeah, I'm delighted to. Um, actually, I've, I've written a memoir that's coming out in the, the fall that I go into this a little bit. Um, before I was two, and therefore before I can even remember this, um, my parents took me to the zoo in Frankfurt, Germany. I was born in Germany. And apparently I broke free of their hands and toddled into the hippo pen, where I was apparently not bitten in half and possibly welcomed. <laughs> As hippos so are always... likely to do, right? They, I mean, they've been oh, yeah, known yeah. to do I that. Mean, you know, yeah. wouldn't you feel invaded if some little primate came into your <laughs> into your pet? I mean, who could blame them? But they, they didn't do anything to me because here I am. But I always was, was fascinated by animals. I think most children are. I think, you know, we were until very recently all hunter-gatherers, and hunter-gatherers, I mean, now we're shopper-gatherers, right? But well, hunter-gatherers shopper have gatherers. to pay attention to the natural world, or else, you know, you can't find any food, you don't know what's going on, or someone comes and eats you. So um, I always felt more drawn to animals than anyone else. I was an only child, so I didn't have brothers or sisters to distract me. And... Um, when I was 
very young, I guess I might have been three or four, um, and I don't remember this either because it was so long ago, but when I was very young, um, I insisted first that I was a horse, and then I insisted that I was a dog. And the problem was that first my mother thought I had some kind of mental problem, <laughs> um, but the other was although everyone was eager to teach me how to be a little girl, no one was there to teach me how to be a dog mm. until the wonderful day that my parents brought home a Scottish terrier puppy mm. named Molly, who became my bigger sister. You know, dogs reach maturity long before we do, and so even though she was younger than I was, I was very aware that she, at age two, was already a mature individual, and I was still a child, and I wanted to be like her. Just like every girl, I think, wants to be like her older sister, I longed to be like Molly. Mm -hmm. And today, that's kind of what I am. <laughs> I, I had always dreamed that Molly and I would go, go off to the forest, and she would teach me the secrets of the animals. And Well, I'm not with Molly anymore, alas, but that's what... I do. I pursue the same kinds of things that I think Molly would have liked to have shown me had we been able to run away together and live in the hollow tree I dreamed of. What a beautiful creature to get inspiration from as well. Dogs are so loving and joyful and playful. Yeah. And so alive to their yes. senses in ways that we don't know. You know, they, they can see in the dark, which we can't. They can hear sounds above the threshold of human hearing. They are so alive to scent. And we live in that same real world that they live in, but they are experiencing it in a different way. And once you have a friend who is an animal, they expand your universe so much. So even if you can't experience their senses by hanging out with them, you get to see them experience mm. the world in a in a way that deepens our our own love of this planet and our own knowledge of what the real world really is. That's what I've found so beautiful throughout all of your books. Well, I've only I've read two about Chris the good good pig and the soul of an octopus and then i started the one about tigers i wish i could have read all okay. 20 but um, <laughs> you you describe the incredible animal intelligence but not just that their personalities and their spirits and you absolutely befriend animals and have them as your family and i love how you say it's a misnomer that for some reason certain people in society think that that's somehow a malfunction. Like if you're friends with an animal or your animal is your family, something has gone wrong in your ability to relate to humans. And you really make yeah, such a strong case. Yeah, that it doesn't, ha it's not that way. And that how much you've learned from your animals and the animals that you research. Oh, I remember reading Harold Hayes's pathography of Diane Fossey, the woman who lived with mountain gorillas until a poacher finally killed her, and she was buried in the gorilla graveyard. I've been to her grave in Rwanda. And people said, you know, gee, Diane just could not make it with humans, so she was forced to find another species. Well, 
No one says that about the astronauts. Oh, they just couldn't make it here on Earth, so they had to go into <laughs> outer space. Right. You know, and it, it drives it drives you nuts when stuff like that is said. Um, you you would be you would be called just incredibly small if your only friends were of your race or sex. Mm. What if your only friends are one species? That makes your world small. Mm. When you've got friends who are other species, it makes your moral universe expand, as well as your sensory universe, as well as your intellectual universe. It just makes everything bigger. Mm. And as you know, you know, compassion... It, it it doesn't exist in little drying up pools. Compassion right. is this vast, bottomless ocean. And once you dip into the ocean of compassion, you realize how how wide it is. Oh, we're hearing from Thurber. Can you hear him oh, barking good. in the He's background? He's chiming in. He's like seconding what <laughs> yeah. you're saying. <laughs> that's right. That's my big boy. <laughs> what kind of dog do you have now? He's our, our third Border Collie, oh. and um, he's, God, he's so great. He came to us because he was blind in one eye. All of his siblings are professional herders working with large numbers of sheep and cows and pigs. And because he was born with one blind eye, although he was smart enough to herd, you don't want to start with an animal who's handicapped in that way because you can literally be blindsided if one of your eyes is blind and it's dangerous work so um the the breeder who normally sells these these dogs to work professionally wouldn't have let one of his puppies go as as a pet but our darling sally had just died of a brain tumor weeks before mm. and i didn't know how much i needed him and he came to me. I'd love to say that he's got one blind eye and one blessed eye. Mm. Um, the the blind eye is actually the blessed eye to right. me. <laughs> right. It's oh, it's so beautiful. And I know that's how you ended up with Christopher Hogwood as well. That he was the runt of the litter, and often right. the female pigs will sometimes kill the runt of the litter because they're not going to make it anyway. And that right, you right, and him. all their siblings push them away from the good food. And yeah, and that. Um, by the way, I grew up. I had an Australian Shepherd for sixteen years. Oh, you did! Oh my yes, gosh! Yes. So when you described was it male how, or female? Female. And, and what was her name? Her name was Patches. Patches. Yeah, oh, how great! Yeah, I used to. I used to work at Google, and I would take her swimming on the weekends, and watching her swim in the fountains there was like pure bliss. Just, oh, wow. Yeah. But she, as you described Collie's being so smart and needing to work, definitely as a puppy, we would come home every day and the entire bookshelves were chewed and on the floor. <laughs> so I think we didn't, oh, realize, no. oh, my God. we didn't realize how much that hurting energy is there and has to be used. Oh, yeah. Well, gosh, I, I feel like a soccer mom with Thurber because we've got all these activities going on. This morning, first walk was with his friend August, who also only has one eye. Um, he's, they're about the same age, and they live on the same street. And then right after that, an Australian um, – no, this, this is – I don't think it's an Australian cattle dog. Um, anyway, it's a part – part mixed dog named Basil. 
So that was his second um, hike of the day. And then later on, he's going to have some time with the poodles. And we're also taking dance lessons together, which is really? hilarious. I've never heard of that. Everybody, oh. everybody thinks I'm doing it with my husband. I'm like, no, it's with Thurber. <laughs> yeah, it's called Canine Freestyle. And wow. if you go on on um, on the internet and look up Canine Freestyle dances, you'll see how much fun it is. And the dogs love doing it. They'll do stuff like weave through your legs and then spin and then jump. And it's just a riot. It's so much fun. It's very similar to agility. But mm. instead of running the same course as all the other dogs, you can cater to what your dog enjoys doing and do the moves that your dog likes and the moves that you like to music that you both like. That is so incredible. It's even the metaphor of dancing with your dog because the dance implies both. You're not just training him. You're dancing with him. You're, you're reading his signals and combining something new between the two of you that wasn't there that's before. Right. And that's it's right. not one side. He comes up with ideas all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's so sweet. That's not, it's not just owner to dog. It's like friends, dancing partners, co-creating. Yeah, exactly. I think that's such he a beautiful such metaphor a for all of your work, truly. Oh, gosh, thank you so much. Mm. You, one thing I had to ask you, I've got to know where this courage comes from. And I think it will give listeners even, even more of an idea. At the beginning of Spell of the Tiger, you share a story that you jumped out of a moving truck in India to go pet a python. And I just thought I have yeah, to know more about <laughs> what inspired you to do that and how you knew that. I mean, most people would avoid pythons at all costs. So how did you know that? Well, and wisely bite? so. I yeah. mean, it wasn't the smartest thing anybody ever did. And I did it without thinking. Um, I just did it without thinking. And the, and the python, it was a huge python. And wasn't like the python could have something? been very irritated by this. Right. And most animals don't want to be touched at all. And uh, this was just one of those things that I didn't even think about it. And the next thing I knew, I was out of the truck and and petting the python's tail, and the python did not mind at all. But I think this is kind of the case of an animal that is forgiving me for being stupid. Um, (laughs) Most animals don't like you to... I mean, I I met an orangutan in Borneo who um, a woman ran up to this formerly captive orangutan and gave her a hug, and the orangutan picked her up and slammed her to the ground on on this dock. And she was like, why, why? Well, she didn't feel like being grabbed and hugged by a stranger. Some stranger does that to you in a foreign country or comes to your house and suddenly starts hugging you. Well, you know, you just might not be in the, the mood for it. But this snake was, was, was special and um, didn't, didn't mind and not only forgave me, but was seemed to be interested. Happily, because the animal was moving away, you know, the head was so far. It was such a big snake. His head was so far from his tail that when I petted the tail, the, the head turned around and kind of looked like, what are you doing? And <laughs> the tongue came out to get oh some molecules of scent and went back in. But I'm not afraid of animals. Um, I mean, I, 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 I try not to do stupid things all the time, but it's people that, that give me the willies. Mm. Um, animals very seldom hurt people unless the person is doing something to harass it. Um, it's, it's people that have given me trouble on all of my trips. And I've, I've gone to a lot of different places to meet wild animals. 
the only animal who ever hurt me was a mosquito who gave me dengue fever. Mm. And I guess ants who bit me. But, you know, twice I've had people pull guns on me. Really? So who's the scary one there? Right. But at the time, I was so focused on my book that I wasn't frightened. I was just furious. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Was it in, why did they pull guns on you? Um, the first time it was uh, for money. And the second time it was in India and it was just to intimidate me and I mm. was not intimidated. So he put the gun away. It's so interesting what you said about people giving you the willies that our intuition, like the other day someone kind of followed me into the building and then the elevator and then my floor. It was just so creepy. And every micro intuition Ew. I had was like, Ugh, you know, and I, I even wish I would have said something to him like, what are you doing here? And I, I didn't. Um, because I just didn't want to interact with him at all. But I knew like, he was so creepy. And it's true oh. that animals don't have that so much. Like they're either trying to defend themselves, but you're you're so right that they don't have all these weird, twisted <laughs> motives that can come into play. And uh, yeah, not not really. Goodness sakes, yeah. um, animals warn you if they're mm. usually if. They're going to attack you. It's because you've crossed some invisible line or even a visible line that you failed to, to see. And they warn you. Even the most venomous snakes, they warn you. Mm. You know, rattlers rattle and cobras erect their hood. And there's one snake species that will even squirt blood out of its eyes to warn you because they don't want to bite you. They don't want to. They know it's, it's dangerous to deploy their, their weapons um, and they they normally don't mean you any mm. any harm at all. We don't have stuff that they want. Um, m most of the time, even though our bodies are made of meat and would be perfectly delicious, one would think, very seldom do animals want to eat us. And most of the time when, when animals do bite us, it's by mistake. Even sharks spit us out most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. very few times that a shark attacks you, great white sharks, um, most of the time the person survives because the shark spit you out. They made a mistake and they wanted a seal and they got you. So, yeah, I feel very, I feel very safe with animals. Do you think there's something intrinsic within you? Maybe you were born with it or maybe it's an energetic state that you put yourself in. I'd be curious if you have any rituals around this or if you just already are in that conveys to an animal that you are safe, you are their friend compared to, say, the woman who the the gorilla tackled or to anyone who um, – and I, I wonder the distinction even between a person approaching an animal who feels afraid and that the animal might be able to smell their scent and therefore become afraid themselves. Just what what you think it is that has so many animals – feel like your friend and vice versa? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. That's a smart question. Um, first, I am not afraid. Um, that's the first thing. And the reason I'm not afraid, I think, is that I expect good things when I'm with animals because that's my experience. I was never taught the lie that animals are out to get you. I, I, and if anyone tried to teach it to me, I didn't buy it. And most children, I think, understand intuitively that animals are, are fascinating to be with. And if, if most children were just not quite as wiggly as they are, 
um, and, and had the attention span to watch, they would fall even more deeply, deeply in love with animals than they already are. And most children's dreams are dominated by animals, as you know. Right. I feel like animals, I have this theory. I'd love your thoughts on this as well. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that animals like children as well, like that somehow dogs know to interact with babies in a different way than they they might with humans. They totally do. They totally do. The only exception is when um, babies try to grab someone's ear or tail. And and typically, the, the only people bitten by dogs in the face tend to be little people. And that's because their face is on you know, the same plane as, mm. as the dog. Um, but most of the time, dogs, remember, dogs were created by their love for us. They domesticated themselves. We did not domesticate them. They chose us. And they are extremely sensitive to what we're thinking and feeling. And we know that they do a lot with vis- visual cues, um, that they can read our expression. We know this with horses, too. There was a recent study um, showing that, that um, horses remember and, and code human facial expressions, and dogs do this too. But also what you were talking about, smell and chemical cues, um, this is very interesting. I, I am sure that animals are detecting our intention through their senses. And with, when I got to know octopuses, I became convinced of this. Octopuses, um, as you know from reading Soul of an Octopus, can taste with all of their skin. And taste is a chemical sense. They can taste with every bit of their skin, including their eyelids, but particularly with their suckers. And not only can they taste the surface of our skin, they can taste beneath the surface of our skin. And I saw this a couple of times in action. A friend of mine Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, who's a fantastic animal person, um, she um, has met octopuses a couple of times with me. She's a very heavy smoker. And her blood, even when she's not smoking, is full of nicotine. Well, the octopuses she met did not like her at all. Mm -hmm. Even though she is the most animal-friendly, wonderful human being, in the world, but they can taste the nicotine in her blood. I think, this is my theory, that they can also taste our neurotransmitters mm. in our blood. And the reason I think this is from a couple of different instances. One was I was running up the stairs, um, these little stairs that help you lean over one of the octopus tanks or used to um, be there at at the New England Aquarium. And I stubbed my toe pretty hard. And I was instantly convinced that this octopus could taste my pain because of the, the difference in her behavior. And another time, I was with an octopus whose name was Kali, and she was a, a real sweetheart, funny, interactive, and a whole bunch of us had our hands in the tank interacting with her. But one of us, um, 16-year-old girl, a friend of mine, great kid, but she, she was on different medicines for various different things, and she was bitten by Kali. 
and not envenomated. They can choose to envenomate you or not, but she was bitten and it wasn't a bad bite, but it was like an investigator, investigative bite. And I later found out that she had just changed her medicine regimen. Mm. And I feel certain that that's why she and no one else was bitten because Kali could taste that with her, with her skin through her suckers and thought, What's going on here? I'm going to investigate this with my beak. Mm. And and the thing is, you, I've learned through you, octopuses are highly, highly intelligent and conscious. And yes, and they, very emotional. And very emotional. And they knew her. And she, Kali probably knew her, knew this wasn't her normal scent or biochemistry. And mm-hmm. like you said, if she was biting to investigate her, because what, what listeners might not realize that I learned from Sai is that... Octopuses can recognize humans and by by touch and potentially even by sight, and they can remember years later. They can spray like the. I thought it was such an interesting story about your friend who's the smoker and how you found out why they didn't like her. Is the octopus would spray her with water right when she would come, and then no one else. <laughs> yeah, they'll they will do that, and sometimes they'll spray out of their jet. They'll, they'll, they can aim directly at your face. So if you're hit right. by an octopus in the face, it's not a mistake. They hit you and not someone else. And I've been right. standing next to people who are hosed right in their face. And, you know, you get some of the splash, but they have excellent aim. They can hit a butterfly um, flying over the water and knock it out of the water with their, with their siphon. But sometimes they use the siphon to play. Mm. And... Sometimes they'll invite someone to play that way, too. And they did that with um, a a boy, a friend of mine named Danny, who has pervasive developmental disorder. And he loves octopuses, but he was also afraid of them. He'd read all these encyclopedia things about octopuses. And so he was a little afraid because of, you know, the old idea that they were monsters and these um, well-known pieces of art that show octopuses bringing down the massive ships and stuff like this. So he was shaking the first time he had an interaction with an octopus. And the octopus kept withdrawing every time he touched the octopus because he'd kind of poke the octopus and was shaking. The octopus blasted him in the face with freezing cold salt water the same way that a little boy might splash you in the face in the mm-hmm. pool to get your attention. And from that moment on, Danny thought that was hilarious and they became fast friends and they instantly began to interact with each other happily and play. It was so cool to see the octopus kind of take the bull by the horns and begin. First, you could see her reading Danny, understanding this kid is afraid. Mm. And two, by choosing, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to play with this guy. I'm just going to splash him in the face and correctly got him to play with her in that way. That is so incredible. It's so incredible. And I think you even told the story about when... Maybe it was Wilson, or it might have been you, was grieving and going through a tough time that the octopus could even sense that somehow. Yeah, they they may be able to sense this through um, our skin, or um, maybe their t- our tears. You know, our, mm. our tears of sorrow are chemically extremely different from tears from something in your eye. Um, that's one reason why you feel better after a cry is that you excrete these brain chemicals 
of sorrow. Why should you feel better after a cry? Your nose is all plugged up. You look terrible. (laughs) But you do feel better after a cry, and this is why. And it's possible that octopuses can taste that also. I mean, the stuff that these guys can do, it sounds like science fiction. It really does. everything an octopus can do sounds like science fiction. Things that you can see them do. You can see them pour their baggy, boneless bodies through a tiny opening. A hundred-pound octopus can squeeze its whole body through an opening the size of an orange. And, you know, everything about them, their brain doesn't look like our brain. It's a ring around the neck. You can cut off, and I mean, God forbid you should do this, but um, if an octopus's limb is severed, the limb can go off and do stuff. They can catch so prey because three-fifths of their neurons are not even in their brain but in their arms. Um, they can untie surgical silk with their, um, not even their tentacles, just their suckers on the tentacles. Which Each they have sucker 16, is tremendously strong. 1,600 That's right. Suckers. That's right. I mean, imagine this thing. These guys, they've just got so many superpowers that you, you think that, that they would be worshipped as gods, and in some cultures, they are. Mm. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe when I first started your book, 1,600 suckers, they can multitask, each one can yeah. multitask, you say sucking, tasting, grabbing, holding, plucking, releasing, each arm has two rows of suckers, each sucker can lift 35 pounds of weight, times 1,600, then they're incredibly smart. And then with the camouflage, they can do 30 to 50 different patterns per individual animal within a tenth of a second and even to patterns they've never seen before. Yes. And they are colorblind. What? No. Their eyes do not seem to have any anything that can process color, which means... It now appears they may be able to see with their skin. Oh my gosh. That's I know, so it just blows your mind. So when we talk about them understanding our emotions, recognizing our faces, that's child play right. to somebody who can, <laughs> right. you know, change color and pour themselves oh through gosh. a tiny opening, you know. There was a YouTube video, and I wonder if this crossed your path when it came out. It was a. A, an, a guy in an aquarium and he released an octopus back to the ocean and the video told the story of the octopus hovering by his feet to thank him for an oh, was hour. Oh, dude? Was yeah. this the dude? I yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah I the dude. the dude. Yeah. Yeah, before <laughs> the octopus great. swam out to sea. Like, it was clear that the octopus and he like touched one of his tentacles to the guy's foot and held it there. And it was just this, you know, we could be anthropomorphizing, but after reading your book, I'm not so sure. No. And, you know, anthropomorphizing, that is such, I'm so glad you brought this up. Anthropomorphism is attributing so-called human characteristics to animals. The very idea that emotions are characteristics that belong to, belong to humans alone. The very idea that intellect is ours alone is so anthropocentric <laughs> that it's, yes. it's ridiculous. Now, it's true that we can always attribute incorrectly certain feelings to others around us. And all of us who have gotten somebody a birthday gift that didn't go over or asked someone out on a date who didn't want to go, we know that we can make mistakes when, when 
it's easy to project what you want onto into others. And that can happen with animals, like the woman who ran up to the orangutan to give her a hug, and the orangutan didn't feel like being hugged. So, you know, but, but it's wrong to think that when we see emotions, when we see intellect, when we see animals utilizing their, their memories, um, when we see animals figuring out problems, that we are merely pretending that they have characteristics that belong to humans alone. That's like nuts. <laughs> and it's, it's not good this. science. <laughs> oh, I have the biggest smile on my face. I love that you're saying this because it's so true. It's so, yeah, human-centric and and. Um, it's that ego and conceitedness that we have as if we own the planet and everything in it. Yeah. And animals are just our property and ugh, the factory farming. And, and, and it's just horrifying. And especially having right. read your books. I mean, I was already almost mostly vegetarian, but it's like these animals are are brilliant and Honestly, it shouldn't matter. Even even like it's prejudice, I think, to judge the intelligence of an animal and their worth of whether we should be killing them or not. Like even that is somewhat ridiculous. But no, we don't do it to humans. <laughs> we know. don't sentence you know sentence somebody to, to be eaten just be- because they didn't perform well on an IQ test. And and what I love is, and even the title of your book, you say, "If I have a soul, an octopus does too." That this goes beyond their functional intelligence and all the things they can do with their different senses. It, there's a soul in there. And I know you knew Christopher Hogwood's soul. And so did everybody in your town and yeah, the octopuses yeah. that you befriended. Yeah, it's really, it is really true. And, you know, the idea of, you know, what is the soul? You can discuss that endlessly. And there's people who say that there's not even a self. There's philosophers who claim that the self is, in fact, an illusion. But the soul, I mean, to me, the, the soul is what's holy in all of us. And to be able to see that others possess this same holiness, to me, that makes the world so much more alive and our earth so much more sacred. And I think that affects our behavior as we move through this world Mm. in a a gentler and more compassionate and more knowing way. Mm. I, I know you've described your work as your ministry is connecting all of us people with the animal world and vice versa. Can you say more about that? Well, I mean, it was just something that when we were talking before we started the recording and sharing our talk with the, our conversation with your, your listeners, um, I do kind of consider my work a, a sort of, of ministry, a sort of witnessing that I think is beyond just writing something that will entertain someone during the hours that they're they're. Re- I want to show them the same brilliant stuff that animals have shown me. And I, I want to share that face of, of God. Mm. There's this wonderful quote that's attributed to Thales of Miletus, and it kind of names how I, how I, 
how I feel having seen what these animals of so many different species can do and their beauty. And it goes like this. It's the universe is alive and has fire in it and it's full of gods. And that is the words of Thales and Miletus, mm. not me. But to me, what that says is that our world is animate mm. and our world is incandescent with beauty and mystery and, and love and that it's far more sacred than we know. Mm. And we should treat it as such. That's so beautiful. Oh, thanks, Thales. So <laughs> Although I don't so... think anybody was recording him when he said that. And who <laughs> knows? I mean, so many of these things from centuries ago, you, you just don't know what they actually said. I mean, <laughs> but I <laughs> but... still love that you're taking those words. Yes, Thales, but also you, because in 20 books for adults and children, you are showing us and I'll quote you, that beautiful face of God and all of his creatures. And just, you know, in the Tao, it's the, the 10,000 things, but it's also the 10,000 animals that we live with and share this planet with, as 10,000 as a metaphor, of course, but that, um, you know, you describe in, in The Good Good Pig that you've always loved people more than animals and didn't want children and uh, how he brought you a whole community. Like he ended up domesticating you. You know, you said when you yes, first got he totally him, did. Yeah, that he was almost diabolically genius. <laughs> you know, like the genius he of things. He really was. And much like he the really octopuses was. who can, they're so strong. Well, Chris was 750 pounds. Like he was hard to contain no matter what you tried. So he ended up the whole town. We get to know him whenever he escaped <laughs> and bring him slops. And he even was written up in an obituary in the paper on the front page of your local paper because he was so beloved. Yeah, He was so beloved. And the amazing thing was, although he was immensely strong, so strong that he could knock over your wood pile with a flick of his nose, so strong that he could just bulldoze your lawn so it looked like Vietnam after the Tet Offensive with his nose. When he was with kids, when he was with my friends who um, use wheelchairs, when he was with my friend Kelly who had cancer and was undergoing chemotherapy, he was absolutely tender. This huge 750-pound pig with pointy tusks was absolutely tender. And people just loved him. <laughs> they loved him. He had a sense of humor. He gave special grunts to special people. The little girls who lived next door, he had a special grunt just for them. And I didn't even know this while he was alive, but after he died, I interviewed them. And they told me that when they would have a bad day, they would come down to his pen and just tell him their sorrows. And he wouldn't even ask for food. He would just kind of listen and grunt and listen and grunt. And his hugeness made their sorrows small. That's so sweet. And um, you even said that his eyes were so expressive, like as expressive as humans. And oh yeah, and you know, because I've I have I can't say that I've seen a pig up close in recent years where I would look at their eyes, but certainly looking at monkeys and gorillas, you can see that. And that, so I didn't oh, realize yeah. pigs had such expressive eyes. And then I looked 
In the middle of your book, you have those beautiful photos in his last Christmas card. Hmm. Not only does he have the kindest eyes, but they're like full of love. Like I could just see him. It's as if he's drunk on love looking back at, I, I don't know if it was you taking the picture. Oh, But wow. just head over heels in love with whoever was taking that picture. And you can see it in his eyes. Oh, that's great. Well, it was either me or Howard who was taking yeah. the picture, but the two of us were together and he did love us like we loved him. Mm. Oh, my gosh. It's it's so funny. Um, I was just at the wedding of the younger of those two girls um, on Saturday, last Saturday. And he was very much, his spirit was very much among us. And they had different assigned tables for you to have dinner at. There were like seven to ten different tables, and there was one table that we sat at called the Good Good Pig Table, and it had his picture right on the table. And both of them remember him every day as I remember him every day. And it just goes to prove that love never dies. Mm. And and that the spirit lives on. We talked before we hit record that you had said in the book, writing Good, Good Pig was excruciatingly difficult because just how much you miss him. And then you kind of walked that gauntlet. And now thousands of people all over the world are inspired by his story and reaching out to you and getting to know pigs better and that his spirit is very much alive and well like he's as much the ambassador now than he was while he was alive like that that spirit is timeless and his impact is and thanks to you also you know bringing his story to life but that it's it's really incredible to see how the spirit never dies either yeah, it, it amazed me. I, I have a friend who's a medium, and she could see Christopher just as plain as day and after he died. And she told me he's even bigger than he was before. <laughs> Hog and now yeah. he's unconstrained, wow. even by his physical body. And it's totally true. When he was alive, one of the things he would do, because pigs are geniuses, is he would he would let himself out of the pen. He would, and this involved some, some pretty tricky stuff that he would do with his lips and his nose disc, which he would thread through the slats of his gate, and he would undo two sets of bungee cords, and then he would flip a, 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 um, a, like a lever and then slide it. I mean, he had to do a lot to get out, but he could get out. And he would go visiting people. Well, now... He has slipped the bonds of his body, and he is visiting people around the world because of the the book written about him. Wow. And you are so right. I I had a heck of a hard time writing that book. It was I was miserable every day mm. I was writing that book because it was detailing everything that I had lost forever. Mm. I was horribly depressed the whole time I was writing it, and I. Normally, you know, you can get up in the morning and lose yourself in work. And frequently in my work, I literally would, you know, I'm going overseas. I'm going to Australia or to the Gobi Desert or French Guiana or, you know, and and you're not confronted by whatever's upsetting you at Mm. home. But this, I was writing about everything that I'd lost forever. And every single day. That's what I had to dwell on and dwell in. But boy, am I glad 
I wrote that book. Um, I tell kids when I, I speak to, to children that just because something is hard doesn't mean you're not good at it. Mm. Just because you're struggling with a project doesn't mean that you're not meant to do it. Sometimes it means you are meant to do it. And sometimes the reason that you're struggling is that it's worth overcoming that struggle. And you'll get something deeply important in return for it. Mm. So it took me, oh gosh, nine months maybe to write that book. It was nine very hard months. But at the end, when the book was finally published, all the joy that he had given to me during his life came back and was multiplied by all the people Mm -hmm. around me. The, The same way that when I would introduce him to people, that that they would reflect and magnify his joy. It's so incredible. I love your advice that just because something is hard doesn't mean you're bad at it and doesn't mean you shouldn't keep going. Like, it's just so important. I had a friend who once told me, my friend Tara said, it's hard, not bad. So very similar advice, which is that... Mm, that is good. Yeah, that it's life can get hard. And, and in your case, this creative project. And I, I just... It's so incredible that you persevered through that and and now have this beautiful m- memory and memoriam and um, and again, just sparking so much more life and more of his story. And as he probably follows readers around the world, you know, from his perch in hog heaven, <laughs> not to mention gobbling all uh, like all the descriptions of how he would eat. It just sounds so joyful. And it's like... <laughs> was yeah it, oh it was just a performance <laughs> art my husband used to say you know come over for dinner and a show the dinner is his and the show is watching me that <laughs> right I, I even love that the minister at your local church got involved and we get the community like people just there was no more need to even compost because they knew that christopher hogwood would delight <laughs> right he would like put your compost on fast yeah. track <laughs> And out would come this perfect manure for your garden. <laughs> right. And and Chris was vegetarian, so you didn't feed him meat or let yes. others feed him meat. Um, That's right. I know we're approaching the end of our time. I could truly talk to you all day, but um, I'm curious. Okay, two questions. I'd love to hear what you're working on next. If you have a next animal uh, study or that you're going to go dive into the new species or anything. I know you also mentioned a memoir. And I got to know, what routines keep you going in writing 20 books? I'm just so amazed at how prolific you've been as a writer. Well, part of it is I'm old. I'm, I'm 60. <laughs> but, uh, and it's really more like 26 books now. I wow. need to update my website. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've got a, a memoir coming out. Actually, next week I have a new book out. Really? Um, Tell us so we can go a, buy it. Yeah. It's a it's a book written for younger readers because it's half photos and half text, but it's called The Hyena Scientist, and it's about hyenas. And Dr. K. Holkamp's studies of these animals who are maligned wrongly. They're fabulous animals. They're a feminist society ruled by the females, and um, they are not mainly scavengers. They kill up to 95% of their food, and they are more likely to have their kills stolen by a lion than the other way around. So Disney was wrong. (laughs) So that's coming out next Tuesday. And um, then this fall, the memoir, How to Be a Good Creature, comes out in which you will meet Molly, and there's a 
chapter. It's a memoir in 13 animals. So um, Christopher's in there. Um, Octavia's in there. You'll meet a uh, an ermine, a tarantula, a couple of tree kangaroos, and more. And um, let's see. I guess the end of, well, beginning of June, I'm going to go on my second expedition to work with California condors. Wow. Um, a, a, a book in the Scientists in the Field series on uh, the condor comeback. There were once 22 of these left on the planet, and today there's more than 400, but the effort to save them is ongoing, and they are again threatened by lead is the main thing that's, that's threatening them. And uh, next year, I've got a diving trip organized for giant manta rays. Ooh. And um, it looks like I'll also be going back to Thailand to do another um, book on the Asiatic wild dog or dole with Earthwatch, a wonderful organization that I highly recommend. Look up earthwatch.org if you ever want to spend a couple of weeks working on a scientific project with scientists studying animals around the world. Regular people, laymen, can do this. Just join earthwatch.org. But anyway, so let's see, you had asked what kind of habits. Well, even with all that travel, I mean, I love how adventurous you are. It's just so incredible. Um, all that travels. Like, how do you keep your writing routines or do you go immerse yourself and then do more of a writing sprint when you come home? Well, what I do... Um, I take a ton of notes. I always have a, a little tiny pocket notebook so that no matter if I'm, you know, riding a camel or hiking up a mountain, I can always take notes of what I'm, am I seeing, what are people saying, uh, what things sound like, smell like, feel like, look like. Um, I have another notebook that I take into the field in which I conduct interviews. I always use that as well as a tape because I actually had an interview eaten by an orangutan once. <laughs> so I always take notes verbatim as well as tape. And then every night um, I have a journal when I'm in the field and I write about what that day showed me, not just what happened. Ooh, it's not a diary smart. of this is what happened, but I try to say, you know, today was all about being lost or Today was all about redemption, or or today was the the cheetah's health check, or you know today we did we drew blood on captured condors, or you know if there was a theme of the day, that's what I write about. Then when I get home, once all the research is done, that's when I do the actual writing, and you get into a headspace. You, you try not to be doing a lot of public speaking and stuff during the time that you're writing. And you keep the phone off um, in the morning. Howard and I both do not answer the phone before noon. And uh, we keep a, a, a kind of, a, you go into a quiet, quiet interior time. That's what we do anyway when we're, when we're writing. And it's funny now because, you know, when you're doing the research, when you're doing the reporting, 
you're using kind of one part of yourself and your soul. When you're writing, you're using yet another part. And then when your book comes out and you're doing the public ministry <laughs> part, that's yet another part of you so that true. You, you use. And you have to keep all of these things kind of in balance and all of them fit. And physical fitness is important too. And so I attend to that. It's so true that, I mean, first of all, thank you for sharing your routines. I love your process and especially what that day showed me. It's like, that's, I always like to leave listeners with an assignment or a piece of homework that they can practice. And you don't even have to be a writer, but how interesting to look at our day, even if you're not on an epic adventure and say, not just what happened, but what did today show me? What did I learn? And, and that analysis and understanding um, is just so cool. And then I, I also love, I, I'm similar to you, don't do any calls in the morning because that's the best chance I have of, <laughs> of a creative pocket. Right, and, right. And don't, don't look at your email. Don't look right. at you know, social media. Don't let that go into your head. Later on, you can do that. Right. Yeah. And I don't find that difficult at all. I find that necessary. I, I don't yes. understand how people feel bereft without that stuff. I don't have, we, we don't have a smartphone. <laughs> That's um, great, right. Yeah, we, we have one of those flip phones that doesn't even work here. But <laughs> I guess I'm not all that connected because I'm used to being swallowed up in some jungle for months. I'm totally used to not being connected mm -hmm. and I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's not that I'm bereft without it. It's like a guilt. I, I have got to crack the case on email pileup guilt <laughs> where like I just start to feel, even though I can't, I have no control over what comes in, but that's the piece where I just start to feel bad. And that I know when I'm working hard. on a book, I know, like when, I, when I'm immersed in a book, I'm horrible at email and getting back to people. <laughs> well, sometimes you can make a message go out saying, I'm yeah. working on a book. Can you, can you contact me next month? Yes, um, that's a great point. Or write me a letter. And generally yeah. people will do that. I also, <laughs> I have an assistant when I'm away who handles my email because there's just no way I can handle it. I'm in right. the middle of nowhere. You're not getting the internet. Right. So, you know, I, I have her handle that. And what she does is instead of keeping, she basically says she's going to get so many emails that she can't possibly, she'll be inundated. So can you re-email her in a month? And a lot of people will decide, okay, I'll do that. And other people will be like, you know what? It wasn't all that important. <laughs> right, right. That's so true. And you have the ultimate excuse, which is the orangutan ate my homework. Yeah, right. So. <laughs> 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 well, although well, we wouldn't want to malign orangutans or anything with their reputation, but um, <laughs> that's right. So I just I respect you and your work so much, and you have taught me so many things about animals, and I just I see this work that you're doing and believe in your ministry a hundred percent, and you, you just write with such heart and soul, and write from your earliest days as a child, like learning from your older sister dog. Like, I just can't think of a better energy to learn from and bring into this world. And I, I really thank you for, for doing the work that you do and for saying yes to this interview. Just well, well right back at you. This you. has been a total pleasure. And I'm thrilled to be connecting with, with this community. Awesome. And everyone, go get size two new books that are coming out, The Hyena Scientist, and you can pre-order How to Be a Good Creature. I cannot wait. Sai, thank you again.
Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips and templates by signing up for Pivot List, a curated twice-monthly newsletter where I share the inside scoop on what I'm reading, watching, listening to, and the latest tools I'm geeking out on. Sign up at pivotmethod.com slash pivotlist. Get show notes from this episode at pivotmethod.com slash podcast. And connect with me on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake. Remember, build first, then your courage will follow. Hasn't it always? <laughs>